in the start of 2020, I know, right before the pandemic hit, I had this bright idea to basically podcast my textbook that I wrote for my students for this bio for health-related sciences. And needless to say, the students rather like it. Well, I also discovered that I like podcasting too. And in this podcast, I'm going to switch gears. I've been talking a lot about astrobiology, but now I'm going to talk about sexual reproduction and inheritance, which is one of the chapters of my textbook. So here it is. And welcome to Tom SciCast. And of course, today we're going to explore the universe. In this case, why do we reproduce sexually? And how is sexual reproduction related to inheritance? You know, Mendel. Or why if your parents have blue eyes, you probably have blue eyes too. That's inheritance and it's really fun. So here we go. Sexual reproduction and inheritance. Now I'm going to start with a quote from Thomas Hunt Morgan, who I think is probably the father of modern genetics. I know. You're thinking Gregor Mendel is the father of modern genetics. Well, you're not alone. I'm always a little bit of a maverick here. But let me get to this quote here, because I really like it. He said, around the turn of the century, like over 100 years ago, certain students of genetics inferred that the Mendelian units responsible for the selected character were genes producing only a single effect. This was careless logic. And it took a good deal of hammering to get rid of this erroneous idea. Because as facts accumulated, it became evident that each gene produces not a single effect, but in some cases, multiple effects on the characters in an individual. What he's trying to say here is that genetics is complicated. Much more complicated than what we typically learn with Gregor Mendel which is something we're going to get into in this podcast. But before I get into inheritance, I'm going to talk about sexual reproduction. Because sexual reproduction is why we need to study inheritance and learn about the patterns of inheritance. If we reproduced asexually, we would just have clones. Our offspring would look just like us. But that is clearly not the case. And if you look in any room, everybody looks different. You look different from your parents. You look different from your siblings. You look different than your friends. Why is that? So with any textbook, we always have these learning objectives. So before I get into inheritance, of course, we're going to talk about sexual reproduction and me being an evolutionary biologist at heart, astrobiologist, evolutionary biologist, natural history. I like it all. But we're going to explain the evolutionary origins and the importance of sexual reproduction. It turns out it's actually important for our health. Not just the sex part, but the actual sexual reproduction. We're going to explain how meiosis forms our gametes, and we're going to explain how meiosis generates all of this genetic diversity that we see. Not from mutations, but we'll get to that. And then after meiosis, or meiosis, we're going to switch gears and I'm going to explain why Gregor Mendel's work was so important, especially for Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection. And then, after we discuss Mendel and his findings, I want you to know, as our next objective, that 
inheritance is more complicated than Mendel thought. It was even more complicated than Thomas Hunt Morgan thought. And we are still learning about inheritance even today. And then lastly, I'm going to finish up with some common misconceptions of inheritance. I'm going to start with my introduction. And I enjoy natural history. And I know that this is a biology for health related sciences, but it's always good to go beyond just humans and turn to the natural world because we actually learn a lot by studying other animals. And one really cool animal that's great to introduce sexual reproduction with is the lesser prairie chicken. You see, each spring, starting at the crack of dawn, male prairie chickens, they gather in an open place. This is out in the short grass prairies of New Mexico. And they begin to sing and dance. And we call this gathering of dancing and singing males a lek. Now, I was watching a lek a few years ago. And all of a sudden, this lone female shows up. And she walks among the males. And as she approaches, their singing becomes more urgent. They start displaying their feathers more. They stomp their feet. I swear, sitting in my truck, I could feel the ground vibrating to the drumming of their feet. And then finally, after a few moments, she walks up to a male. I don't know what she used to select this male, but she selected him. Maybe it was the best dancer. Maybe it's the best singer. Maybe he had the brightest feathers. Maybe all of those. And then she mated with them. So out of a dozen or so males, only one was lucky that morning. I guess the others have to try harder the next day. And I tell you what, there's nothing quite like watching male birds dancing and singing to attract females. So much energy is spent on attracting a mate. You know, I, I think I've seen this before, like in nightclubs on Thursday nights, especially going back to my undergraduate days. Lots of males strutting around to attract females. Yep, we do it similar to birds, but not quite the same. Humans, like other birds, and most other animals and plants, we reproduce sexually. And sexual reproduction occurs by combining the gametes of two different individuals into a new offspring. So you get gametes from your mom, you get gametes from your dad, they fuse and you create a new offspring. So you have half your genes from your mom and half your genes from your dad. So based on the fact that most plants and animals reproduce sexually, obviously means it's important and understanding how it evolved can provide us some insight into how it works and what happens when things go wrong. Now, sexual reproduction, just to make sure we're all on the same page here, it occurs when two parents each contribute a copy of their genome to create genetically different offspring when the gametes fuse. And as a result, an individual like yourself, you have two copies of a genome. You got one copy from mom, one copy from your dad. Now, the origins of sexual reproduction began with the evolution of eukaryotic cells going back nearly 2 billion years ago. And this has been inherited by plants and animals and fungi. But fungi are really weird. And in fact, both plants and animals, we still produce very small male gametes. And the female gametes are very large. 
containing all the cytoplasm, organelles, and the all-important mitochondria. Now, there are several advantages to sexual reproduction, which explains why it's so common among eukaryotes. First, sexual reproduction led to cells with two copies of a genome, possibly as a way of protecting cells from the damaging effects of cellular respiration. Second, sexual reproduction also generates genetic diversity among individuals within a population, and this can help them quickly adapt to a changing environment. And in sexual reproduction, it's the traits of the parents that are passed on from one generation to the next. Now, for a long time, no one understood how inheritance worked. We didn't really figure this out until Mendel and Thomas Hunt Morgan came along. So when Darwin published his theory of evolution by natural selection, starting back in the 1830s on his voyage in the Beagle, and then actually publishing it decades later in 1859, his biggest lack of supporting evidence was we didn't know how traits were inherited or we didn't know the sources of variation, which came later, of course. And as you can imagine, part of that answer came in the 1860s when Gregor Mendel, he did this brilliant replicated experiment on pea plants. He provided the first rules of inheritance which supported Mendel's theory. Although uh, Darwin didn't know about Mendel's work and it was kind of lost and it was finally rediscovered in the 1890s when Darwin's work had actually started to fall out of favor. Now we know Darwin was absolutely right. But what Mendel did is he demonstrated that certain traits like flower color, seed color, seed shape, those are inherited as a discrete unit from our parents. And in the years after Mendel's discovery, it's become apparent that his inheritance and the rules of dominance and independent inheritance were overly simplified. But yet, his contributions remain important, something I'll get to later on in this podcast. And then, in the early 1900s, Thomas Hunt Morgan started basically modern genetics by experimenting on this small, tiny fruit fly. And he did a lot. I mean, his work discovered the chromosomal basis of inheritance. He also linked the behavior of meiosis to gamete formation. And he also showed that mutations are that source of genetic variation for new alleles in a population. And traits can be inherited together because they're on the same chromosome. And that was the beginning of modern genetics. And in the last 50 years, the last two decades, our knowledge of inheritance has grown at this astounding rate. We now know that many genes interact with each other and the environment to produce a single trait. And one obvious example is your skin color. Some people can get really tan. Some people go in the sun and they go from white to pink to red lobster. Other people, you can barely tell they've been in the sun for 12 hours. So that is how we know that multiple genes interact with the environment to produce a single trait like skin color. Skin color is actually quite complicated. Eye color is even more complicated than skin color. Well, that was my little introduction into sexual reproduction and inheritance. Let's take a deeper dive into our first learning outcome, which is understanding and explaining the origins and importance of sexual reproduction.
I mean, think about this. Why do we reproduce sexually? Why not simply reproduce asexually? I mean, think about it. We don't question the origins of sexual reproduction, mainly because we're, we're used to it. But honestly, the, the question of why we reproduce sexually and how it evolved has been a question that's perplexed scientists for hundreds of years. There had to be some selective advantage in early eukaryotes for sexual reproduction to occur or to evolve. So what was that advantage? So we know that sexual reproduction occurs when two gametes fuse together to form a new organism. Now for most animals, that means the male and the female each contribute a copy, one copy of their genome and their offspring carries two copies of a genome. That means you have two copies of a genome. The gametes, your sperm and egg, can only have one copy of a genome. If not, the amount of DNA would double every generation. So to prevent this rapid buildup of DNA from occurring, eukaryotes evolved a novel form of cell division, which we call meiosis, and that's how we generate our gametes that only have one copy of our genome. Now the origin of meiosis Meiosis? I'm not sure which way it goes. It may have begun with small changes to mitosis, which of course is the asexual reproduction of eukaryotes. So when a cell reproduces asexually, the sister chromatids are pulled apart at anaphase, producing two genetically identical daughter cells. Now, starting with a diploid cell. Now diploid is what you are. You've got two copies of your genome, hence the word diploidy, two chromosomes. So when those DNA in the cells replicate, all that DNA gets replicated, the cells that are gonna form your gametes will go through two rounds of cell division. And what this does is this allows for the cell with two copies of the genome to produce four daughter cells with only one copy of the genome. So, Sexual reproduction, it presents a paradox to evolutionary biologists for several reasons, because we're recombining all of these genes together to form a different offspring from the parents. So think about this paradox. Imagine your environment isn't really changing that much and you're doing pretty well in it. Well, if you're doing well in it, sexual reproduction is gonna break apart that winning combination of alleles that winning combination of genes. So your offspring may or may not be as well adapted as you are. Whereas if you reproduced asexually, you'd reproduce a clone, be identical to you, and would be just as adapted to the environment as you are. So kind of odd that you would break up these winning combination of genes. I mean, think about Einstein. I was a winner. Uh, you ever heard of his Einstein's kids? Yeah, me neither. Second, Asexually reproducing organisms should be able to produce more offspring simply because you don't have to find a mate. You know, we have to find a mate. That takes energy. And third, having two sexes, male and female, that cuts in half the number of potential mates in a population. So not only are you breaking a, potentially breaking apart a winning combination of alleles, you have to go find a mate but not just any mate, you have to find the right mating type, male and female. So 
why does this happen? Why does it remain so common in eukaryotes? And there are many theories to explain this, but there are three popular theories that I'm going to cover here. And the first one, you might be guessing this if you've listened to any of my podcasts, the mitochondria did it. I know, the mitochondria did it. This theory predicts that the evolution of mitochondria may have led to the evolution of sexual reproduction and even the evolution of having two sexes, male and female. Now, we know mitochondria. We know them as a powerhouse of the cell, and that's not inaccurate. They do make the majority of ATP for our cells. However, mitochondria did even more than that. And as we're discussing here, they may have led to the evolution of sexual reproduction and the two sexes. Now, how would that happen? Well, it turns out that if you're using oxygen to make ATP, there's a trade-off. And while you make more ATP using oxygen, guess what? Oxygen is reactive and it forms something called an ROS, reactive oxygen species. Now, I know, I know you guys are thinking R-O-U-S, which is a rodent of unusual size found in the fire swamps of the Princess Bride. Let's not get them confused here. The ROSs, these reactive oxygen species, they basically have this electron that isn't forming a chemical bond. So it's really, really reactive. And it reacts with proteins, membranes, and your DNA and it oxidizes them. It basically causes cellular damage, and it can also cause cellular damage to your DNA. And if you damage the wrong piece of DNA, if you damage a vital gene for a protein, your cell can die, and your mitochondria will go down with the dying cell. It's going down with the ship here. So if you remember, sexual reproduction brings in two copies of the genome to make one organism. You're diploid. What that means is you've got two copies of your genome. So if one gene becomes damaged, well, guess what? You have another functioning gene that can still work. Not only do you have a functioning gene, you also have one that can be used to repair the damaged one. So that's it. That's why we think the mitochondria were probably really important in the evolution of sexual reproduction. Now, the next question is, why is it maintained? It obviously can break apart a winning combination of alleles. You have to go search for mates, and you have to find the right mate, and there's all so much energy involved with sexual reproduction. Well, here's theory number two. More genetic variation in a population. Just think about this. You look different from your parents. You look different from your siblings. The evolution of sexual reproduction in eukaryotes, it provides a mechanism for enhancing genetic variation of population. Each time the gametes fuse to form a new offspring, you are combining different versions of genes together. Those different versions of genes are called alleles. So we all have the same genes, we just have different alleles. So sexual reproduction is a lot like playing cards. You have a deck of cards. Those are your genes. 
then you have variations. And every time you deal a hand, some hands are winners, some hands are losers. But the point here is you're always playing with the same cards. So this is an important point. Remember this. Sexual reproduction, it recombines alleles into different combinations to create variation in a population. Sexual reproduction does not create new alleles. Only mutations can make a new allele. And that's important. There's one more theory, and it's a little bit controversial. Not everybody agrees with it. But theory number three is that sexual reproduction can lead to the removal of deleterious alleles from a population. Now, deleterious allele, these are alleles that are unfit. They're not good. They're a bad mutation that makes the offspring less fit in many different ways. Every time I think of this theory of removing deleterious alleles, I can't help but to think of Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> you know, these fictional characters are dreamed up by Mike Judge back in the early 90s. Gen Xers all the way, just like myself here. Now, you could imagine that Beavis and Butthead don't have a lot going for them. And as a result, they're unlikely to have offspring. And in fact, in the latest movie, Beavis and Butthead Do the Universe, it was revealed that Beavis never has an offspring in all of the multiverses. So put it like this. If he has some deleterious alleles that make him unfavorable for any reason, then when he passes on, those alleles go with him. They are not kept in the population. They are actually removed from the population. Now, granted, not everybody believes in that because that would imply group level selection. And one of the main things about natural selection is that it operates on the individual, not a population. But in this case, by removing deleterious alleles, the average fitness of the population goes up. So those are the main reasons why we think evolution got started from an evolutionary standpoint. The mitochondria did it. And those are theories. There are more explaining why sexual reproduction has been maintained in life for so long. And this brings us to our next section here. If you're going to reproduce sexually, you've got to combine two genomes together to form an offspring. And to combine two genomes together, you need gametes. And you need those gametes to be haploid, meaning they carry only one copy of your genome. So, I'll say this again, humans, we have 46 chromosomes in our, in our body cells. We call those somatic cells. But in our gametes, the sperm and the egg, they have 23 chromosomes, one copy. Okay, so meiosis, for sexual reproduction to work, we need to have the number of chromosomes from 46 to 23. If you didn't do that, then with each generation, you would double the number of chromosomes. So we had this cell division called meiosis. I guess I should call that meiosis. Now it relies on some variations from mitosis, but it solves that problem with sexual reproduction. It cuts the number of chromosomes in half when making gametes, which prevents that doubling of chromosomes. 
Now, not only did it solve the problem of too many chromosomes, it also led to more genetic diversity by basically shuffling the deck and creating new combinations of alleles in each generation. While meiosis shares several steps in common with mitosis, like replicating your DNA, forming sister chromatids, and dividing the nuclear material, the cytoplasm, and sometimes the organelles, but not always, there are some key differences. First, meiosis has two rounds of cell division, and the daughter cells, or actually the granddaughter cells, the cells after the second round, are haploid. Now remember, you've got 46 chromosomes, you have two sets, one from each parent, your gametes, the granddaughter cells, are haploid, meaning they only have 23 chromosomes. Now second, the daughter cells from meiosis are genetically different, and that's due to these key events that occur during the first round of cell division. And these include independent assortment and crossing over. I'll get to those in the next section. But the first round of cell division is called meiosis 1, and the second round is called meiosis 2. In the cells that go on to form gametes, the DNA is replicated and the cell prepares for the meiotic phase as part of their cell cycle. Now, during prophase 1, okay, prophase 1, we're taking all of the chromatin, that DNA material that's inside the nucleus, and we're going to condense it into our chromosomes that are visible. And because we replicated our DNA, they're going to be called sister chromatids, and they're gonna be held together by a centromere. And that's a protein complex holding these sister chromatids together. But here's another difference between mitosis and meiosis. In meiosis, all the homologous chromosomes, these are the chromosomes like chromosome number one. You get one from your mom, one from your dad. They all have the same genes, just different alleles, different versions of those genes. So we replicate chromosome one, there's one with two sister chromatids from your mom and then one chromosome one with two sister chromatids from your, your dad and we combine them together and it's called a tetrad because there are now four sister chromatids and this basically consists of two chromosomes and all the four chromatids. Now recall that replicated chromosomes that are made of these sister chromatids are still considered a single chromosome and they will be until the sister chromatids are separated. We're still in this first round of cell division here. And as the cell continues from prophase, where we've got this, the tetrads, into metaphase one, we take all those tetrads, all the chromosomes, they're all stuck together, right? And we line them up right in the middle of the cell. That's called the metaphase plate. And then as we transition from metaphase to anaphase, Remember, that's where we pull the chromosomes apart. And importantly, in metaphase one, meiosis one, transitioning from the chromosomes all in the middle to pulling them apart in anaphase, that is when the cell goes from diploid to haploid because you separate the homologous chromosomes. You separate the chromosomes from each parent and you start to put them into a daughter cell. Now, the daughter cells are going to have you know, 23 
chromosomes, but they're going to have 46 chromatids. So in the second round of cell division here, known as meiosis two, we're going to pull the sister chromatids apart. And if we started with one cell, we are now going to have four cells. If we started with 46 chromosomes, we now have 23 chromosomes. And that is basically meiosis. And that is how we form our eggs and our sperm and all animals and plants. Now you're going, wait, plants don't have sperm. They do. It's called pollen. So what I just covered is the basics of meiosis. And in most introductory biology classes, that's all we go into. But this being a biology for health related sciences, let's talk a little bit about the gamete formation in humans. Because even though sperm and egg do go through two rounds of cell division of meiosis, there are some key differences between males and females. The most obvious difference is the size between the sperm and the eggs. In men, it's called spermatogenesis. Sperm meaning seed, genesis means origins of something. And in women, it's called oogenesis. Oo meaning egg, genesis once again meaning origins or formation of something. In men, spermatogenesis, we're making our sperm here, that begins when a self-generating stem cell it divides by mitosis. That's right, mitosis, producing two genetically identical daughter cells. And we call those the primary spermatocytes. Once again, sperm means seed, site means cell. From here, one of those cells will remain a self-generating stem cell to make sure there's always a source of cells for making new sperm. The other primary spermatocyte undergoes meiosis one, producing two haploid daughter cells called the secondary spermatocyte. Then the two secondary spermatocytes, they divide again in meiosis two. We're gonna pull the sister chromatids apart and this results in daughter cells with 23 chromosomes. Now, after the cell division of spermatogenesis, the cells actually remain attached together, so they all develop together. And then once the four daughter cells are formed, they will eventually all develop into a mature sperm. They'll separate themselves, and they'll grow a long flagella. And sperm cells are really small. They're not much larger than a nucleus and lack most of their cytoplasm and endomembrane system. And in males... Uh, we start making sperm early in puberty and we'll do it for the rest of our life. And each day we make about a hundred million or so viable sperm. And uh, the whole process takes about 74 days. Now in females, there's some similarities, but there's also some difference. And one of those differences is that meiosis can be halted for years and also the fertile gamete, it's enormous. It's thousands, hundreds of thousands of times larger than a male sperm. And it has all the cytoplasm, all the enzymes, all the endomembrane system. And you inherit all your mitochondria from the eggs. And that's not just humans. That is all animals and plants. So in humans, oogenesis begins like in the seventh month of development, females start making their eggs when they're still in their mom's womb, before you're even born. And a primary oocyte begins in the follicles located within the ovaries. 
and the process remains in prophase one until puberty. So basically, when a female is born, when a woman or a girl is born, you're born with all of your eggs and they've stopped dividing. They're, they haven't completed meiosis yet. And you might contain a million primary oocytes, but the majority will die shortly after birth, leaving you with about 400 or 500 primary oocytes that will survive until puberty. And then once you reach puberty, about 28 days, give or take, there's some variability there, a primary oocyte will complete meiosis one, forming a secondary oocyte, and then it will continue to meiosis two, which is halted in metaphase two. So when a woman ovulates, the primary oocyte undergoes meiosis one, making two haploid daughter cells. However, there's another difference here. Only one of those secondary oocytes is viable. The other one is tiny. It's just a polar body. And basically the whole function of a polar body is to remove a set of DNA. And then if the secondary oocyte is not fertilized, it will be lost with the endometrium at the end of the cycle. However, if a secondary oocyte gets fertilized by a sperm, then it will undergo meiosis two, separating the sister chromatids, and once again, creating a second smaller polar body. This is basically just getting rid of those excess chromosomes. And then you have a diploid zygote from the other cell. So as you can see, there's very uneven division of the cellular material during meiosis one and two in the female gametes, the oocytes. So as in men, where we're constantly producing viable sperm throughout much of our life, starting with puberty, women are a little bit different. Those primary oocytes, they can be maintained for nearly 50 years. And then by the time a woman reaches about the age of 50, give or take, there's some variability here. They go through menopause where they no longer have any viable eggs. And this is where I give a shout out to Dr. Jen Gunther. She is a great resource on women's health issues, including menopause. Now, one of the problems with the resting periods of the primary oocyte is that as a woman ages, especially past around the age of 35, the probability that the homologous chromosomes or the sister chromatids they fail to separate during meiosis one or meiosis two. And this leads to something called a non-disjunction. This is when you produce a daughter cell with an abnormal number of chromosomes. So if you fail to separate your sister chromatids, you might get a gamete, an egg with 24 chromosomes. You might get two chromosome 21s, or you might get no chromosome 21s. Now, Obviously, if you don't get chromosome 21, that egg is not viable. You basically, it can't develop into a human. This means if an egg has two chromosome 21s because they failed to separate during meiosis, and then a sperm fertilizes that egg also carrying a chromosome 21, then the offspring has three copies of chromosome 21. You may have heard of this. It's called a trisomy. Tri meaning three. 
and this leads to something called Down syndrome. And this is one of the only trisomies that is viable, and they live to be about 40 or so. You can have trisomies in the sex chromosomes, and I'm not going to get into that here. But part of the problem with non-disjunctions, the failure to pull the chromosomes apart correctly during meiosis, leads to chromosomal abnormalities. And it's thought that approximately 20%, 20%, one out of five pregnancies end in the first three months or the first trimester because of these trisomies or missing a chromosome. Okay, these chromosomal abnormalities. So yeah, this is kind of a big deal. So that's how meiosis works in animals, plants, and then in humans, we have the spermatogenesis and the oogenesis, which have their differences, as we just discussed. Now, one of the questions we have was, why reproduce sexually? And one of the theories to explain why we reproduce sexually is because it generates genetic diversity. And I'm going to say it again. Sexual reproduction creates genetic diversity by recombining different combinations of genes, different alleles into new offspring. It does not create new alleles. Only mutation generates new alleles. That being said, meiosis does generate genetic diversity. So how does it do this? In a nutshell, I just said it. It creates unique combinations of alleles in an individual. And of course, some combinations work better than others, resulting in higher fitness. Now, in a biology for health related science class, when we think of fitness, we think of how fit you are to pass some physical test. In biology, outside of the health related fields, or especially in evolution, fitness is a measure of reproductive success. Fitness increases with more offspring. But let's return to how meiosis generates genetic diversity. There are three different ways that it does this, and they all work together. I'll name them here. One, random orientation of the chromosomes. This occurs during prophase and metaphase one. Two, crossing over, because this breaks apart linked genes. And three, random fertilization. Okay, let's dive right in and take a closer look at these. Starting with random orientation of the chromosomes. You've noticed, I mean, any basic observation that you look similar to your offspring, you look similar to your siblings, you look similar to your parents, but not exactly alike. And I've said this a lot. And in fact, when I was younger, my dad told me that my brother was more closely related to me than any other person in the world. And years later, I realized my dad is partly right. On average, he's totally right. But that's not always the case. You might be way more distantly related to your own sibling than you are to your parents. Or you could be much more closely related to your sibling than your parents. But on average, you're about half. Wait, how in the world does that work? Okay, let's take a closer look here. Random orientation of chromosomes. We're going to have to do a thought experiment here. So remember, 
we get 23 chromosomes from each of our parents. So no matter what, you are at least, at least 50% related to each one of your parents. And don't forget, the same goes for your parents as well. They are 50% related to each one of their parents. Here's why this is important. Your parents, your mom and dad, they're going to form gametes. And those gametes are going to contain different combinations of genes from their parents. And the combinations are made randomly during metaphase one. Let's do a thought experiment. And we're just going to do it ourselves here really quick. Because when I start talking about parents and grandparents, even I get lost trying to narrate this. But imagine you're going to form a gamete. And you've got 23 chromosomes from mom, 23 from your dad. Imagine all 23 chromosomes from your dad lining up on one side and all 23 chromosomes from your mom lining up on your other side. And then when you pull those apart, you create gametes that have only your mom and only your dad's chromosomes. Those gametes are different, right? Let's take this a step further. Imagine your partner. Imagine they had a gamete that did the exact same thing. All of dad on one side, all of mom on the other side. Meaning now you've got gametes that are from all mom and all dad. Now imagine a scenario where you have two offspring. And the first one got gametes that were from all of your mom's. And then from your partner, also all of their moms, okay? They're still 50% related to you and your partner. But now your, your, your number one born kid has all of the maternally inherited chromosomes. And you can see where I'm going with this, right? You have child number two. And in this admittedly improbable scenario, they get all the male chromosomes. So now you've got two siblings and girl and boy, and you could imagine that they would be really, really different from each other. They would be almost completely unrelated to each other, right? Because they've got, one's got all the, all the ones from the moms and the other one's got all the genes from the dads. They would be very unrelated to each other, but they would be more closely related to the parents in that case. Now that scenario, can happen. It's improbable. It's like winning the lottery, but it can happen. Now, on average, as those chromosomes line up, it's random, hence random orientation of the chromosomes. You might have some mixture where you get 50% from mom and dad in the chromosome. You might get 25%. You might get 75%. You get the idea. You can imagine them lining up completely randomly. That is a random orientation of the chromosomes. And as a result, of us having 23 chromosomes, that means we have n to the 23 times or 23 power possible combinations of chromosomes from our parents. So when I make a gamete, I can make about 8.4 million different types of combinations of chromosomes from my mom and dad. And of course, my wife did the same thing and you're doing the same. So what that means in humans, each human is capable of producing about 
about 8.4 million different types of gambits. That's two to the 23, right? That's two times two times two to the 23 power. So that's the first way you get genetic variability through sexual reproduction. There's a second way that also occurs when these chromosomes form the tetrads. Now remember in the tetrad, we replicate our DNA. We form chromosomes made of sister chromatids. We put them together to form the tetrad. So if you've got chromosome one from mom and dad, they're both replicated, they come together. What happens is that genes, different versions of genes that are on mom's chromosome can jump over to the dad's chromosome. And then that one can, the one on the dad's can jump to the mom's. And we call this crossing over and crossing over breaks up what we call linked genes in a linked gene. Imagine you have a chromosome and you have all these genes on it, coding for various things. A good example is like, well, our phenotypes, our outward expression, our hair color, our eye color, our skin color. Have you ever noticed that redheads often have fair skin with green eyes? Blondes often have fair skin with blue eyes and people with really dark skin often have dark eyes and dark hair. And the reason why is because all the genes to make melanin and the genes to regulate how much melanin you make are all located close together on the same chromosome. So you inherit them together. They are linked. However, sometimes you see a person with dark skin, dark hair, and bright blue eyes. Sometimes you see a redhead with dark skin and brown eyes. And the reason why is because crossing over broke apart those linked genes as a gene to produce melanin from one parent, like your mom, switches over to the more fair chromosome that produces light skin and red hair and blue eyes. So then you might get a person with red hair, brown eyes, and light colored skin because of crossing over. So this makes even more genetic variability. And then there's a third way you create genetic variability, and that's just random fertilization. Okay, it's not totally random. There's some evidence that the egg sends out chemical signals that the sperm can detect and swim to the egg. It's called chemotaxis. Chemo meaning chemical, taxis meanings going to or movement. And even more surprisingly, it turns out that the egg can have some say over which sperm gets to fertilize it. But if I'm making 8.4 million different combinations of chromosomes in my gametes, and so does my wife, so does your partner, that means you have approximately 70 trillion possible combinations of alleles between the two of you. Meaning you'd have to make about 70 trillion offspring before you had two that had the same set of chromosomes. And they'd still be different because of crossing over. So there you have it. That is how meiosis generates genetic diversity. Now we understand not only the importance of sexual reproduction, we also understand what sexual reproduction is and how we form our gametes, our sperm and our egg, and how that process of meiosis generates genetic diversity. So of course, this leads us to inheritance. 
What are those patterns of inheritance? And most of you have probably heard of Gregor Mendel. He's commonly known as the father of modern genetics. And the reason why is he kind of deserves it. He discovered the first laws of inheritance. And lots of us, we have questions about inheritance. I mean, what will our daughter look like? What hair color will she have? What color eyes? You know, parents often ask these questions when they decide to have children. Both my kids have blue eyes, but our first daughter has straight blonde hair like her mom. I had black curly hair. I know it's weird. I'm, I'm bald now, but I'm the only one in my family that lost my hair, which is odd. And I'm curious, like, why does my one daughter, my, my firstborn have straight blonde hair? My secondborn has curly hair. How did I go bald when nobody else in my family did? Maybe. And uh, how did all of my uncles and nine cousins escape the hair loss? Why am I the only one? So people have been asking these questions about inheritance probably since our existence. And it really wasn't until the last 150 years that we finally began to understand inheritance. And there's reasons why we didn't understand it. It's complicated. And that's an underlying theme here. As I talk about Gregor Mendel, this is a very simplistic view of inheritance. There are genes and traits that are inherited like this. Most are not. But he did lay out the first principles and he made some very important discoveries that I'm going to talk about. So remember this. Inheritance, like many things in biology, like many things in our lives, inheritance is complicated with many genes determining a single trait. And those genes don't act in a vacuum. Our genetic code, our genes are not a blueprint. They're more like a cookbook. They're a set of guiding principles because our genes interact with our environment as well. So it's complicated. I mean, think about eye color. We still don't know exactly how eye color is determined. There's evidence there's up to 15 genes involved with eye color. I mean, think about that. 15 different genes, and each of those genes has different variations, different alleles. So it's not the only complicated trait. There's skin color. It's on a continuum from very dark to very light based on how much melanin and what type of melanin is produced in the skin. That's why people of Northern Asia and Northern Europe are both light colored in their skin, but their skin still looks different. It has to do with different types of melanin and different mutations that led to lighter colored skin. And second, you know, there were a few experiments that were testing how inheritance worked, some breeding experiments, including ones by Darwin, but because inheritance is difficult, because it's complicated, he was never unable to discover the basic rules. So the prevailing thought in the 1800s was something called blending inheritance. And many observations, many simple observations support this. My kids, you know, they look blended between me and my wife. I'll hear somebody go, oh, your kid looks like you. Oh, your kid looks like your wife. Oh, your kid's hair is a little bit darker than your wife's, but lighter than yours. The traits appear to be blended. And we've seen dark-skinned people have an offspring with a light-skinned person. Guess what? The children are often kind of in between. So the appearance looks blended. It's like yellow and blue made green, right? I mean, and this was a problem for Darwin. 
You see, natural selection depends on variation in a population. And if you get some new type of variation, it was thought in the 1860s that it would be quickly swamped out. So imagine you take yellow and blue, you make green, you keep adding blue, the yellow was lost, it becomes less green, more bluish, it's gone. And another one was, we didn't know why some traits appeared to be lost, like my hair loss, like none of my cousins, none of my uncles have hair loss, but my mom has a second cousin from my mom's side of the family that has the exact same hair loss I do. How did it skip a generation? How did it skip the entire family except for me, right? So that lack of understanding of traits and how they're inherited, this plagued Darwin's theory for decades. And ironically, Darwin published in 1859, it was in the 1860s that it was being highly debated, almost falling out of favor over the 70s and the 80s because they didn't know about inheritance. And this was occurring while Gregor Mendel was publishing his work in Austria and German. And Darwin didn't speak German, he spoke English. So it took a while, it took three decades for Mendel's work to get rediscovered by some botanists. And when they discovered it, it was like, oh yeah, this supports natural selection. Darwin was right. There were still some criticisms, but those came next. Now we're talking about Gregor Mendel being the father of modern genetics because he created these rules of inheritance. Now, any freshman biology course worth its salt has got to talk a little bit about Mendel's experiment and how that shed some light on how traits are inherited. And I'm going to say, he chose wisely. If he had chose almost any other flower, any other plant for that matter, he would have been just as frustrated as Darwin. But he chose these pea plants, and he got pretty lucky with some of the traits and kind of made his data fit something that wasn't actually happening. But still good here. So what he did is he focused on a few traits like flower color, seed color, seed shape. And he did experiments, lots of experiments with what's called a true breeding plant. So a true breeding plant is going to always produce the same type of offspring. So if you're a white pea flower, you're going to always make white flowers. If you're purple, you're always going to make purple. That would be true breeding plants. So keeping it simple. I'm not going to get complicated here because people have been frustrated up to this point. They couldn't figure it out, but he did. And here's how he did it. He began breeding plants in what's called a mono-hybrid cross. Mono just means one. So basically, he took plants that were true breeding for purple, true breeding for white, and he bred them together. And the first generation, the F1s, you probably already know this story, they all came out purple. And if he did it with seed color, he mixed yellow and green, and they all came out yellow. But he didn't stop there. Even though there were no in-betweens, there was no blending of inheritance here. So when he crossbred the F1s to make the F2, the second generation, he noticed that about 75% of the offspring had purple flowers, 25% had white flowers, and if you're following the seed example, same thing, 75% yellow, 25% green. The ratio, of course, is three to one. 
there are several key observations here. There was no blending. They were either purple or white, and something skipped a generation. And when it skipped a generation, it was more rare. So interpret these results, you know, Mendel made the reasonable assumption that each parent contributed heritable features to their offspring. In this case, seed color, seed shape, flower color. Today, we define that heritable feature, such as flower color, seed color, as a gene. As humans, we have genes for hair color, eye color, skin color, blood type. Now, we have lots of genes for those. This is different from the plants where there's one gene for flower color and one gene for seed color. Very simplistic. So, of course, there's different variations of these genes. We call those variations, I've said it before, you know it, an allele. In the Mendel's experiments, the pea plants have a gene for flower color and the two alleles are purple and white. The two alleles for seed color are yellow and green. So in the true breeding plants, here's some more words for you, they were homozygous. Homo means same. They contained two copies of the same allele. So tree breeding plants, always producing purple flowers or always producing white flowers are homozygous. They contain two copies of the same allele. And when you crossed those homozygous individuals in that first generation, you bred the purple and the white flowers, all the offspring were heterozygous, 100% of them. They each carried an allele for the purple flower and they each carried an allele for the white flower. And the reason why they were all purple is because the purple allele is dominant. So Mendel realized that we are getting alleles from each of our parents. Those alleles can be dominant, like the purple flower, which means they're expressed, or they can be recessive, which means you need to be homozygous to express a recessive allele. And if you're heterozygous, you're gonna express the dominant allele and not see the white allele. So in the F1s, they were all purple flowers. They were all heterozygous. You only need one copy of the allele to make the plant purple. Meanwhile, the recessive allele is just hanging out. You can't see it. I'm gonna sum up his experiment and his laws here really quickly. And I'm gonna use the modern terminology so I don't confuse us. So this means that if we talk about Mendelian inheritance, it typically refers to these three basic concepts that he figured out in his breeding experiments. The first one, the law of segregation. That means you receive two alleles for a gene, one from each parent. We now know that's from meiosis. So in during gamete formation, alleles sort independently of each other. So you receive one allele from each parent. We now know how that happens through meiosis. He did not know that. Two, the law of independent assortment. Genes for different traits are inherited independently of each other. And that's because the genes segregate independently of each other during meiosis. Now that law of independent assortment, I want to make a caveat here. That only works if the genes are on different chromosomes. Earlier, I talked about linked genes. Think about skin color, eye color, and hair color. 
these things often being inherited together because all of the genes for making melanin and regulating melanin are on the same chromosome, and that's broken apart by crossing over. Mendel got really lucky here. By studying seed color and flower color, those genes determining that are on different chromosomes, so they are inherited independently of each other. Having a purple flower has no bearing on seed color, okay? Most genes don't follow independent assortment. And then his third principle for Mendelian inheritance, it's a law of dominance. An allele can be dominant or recessive. If an allele is dominant, then its product, typically some protein or a pigment, is expressed and you can see it in the individual. So those are the three common laws of Mendelian inheritance. Segregation, you get your alleles from your parents, or they're formed independently of each other. Law of independent assortment, only if they're on different chromosomes. And the law of dominance, that alleles can be dominant or recessive. Now really quickly, I want to make a connection between alleles and our outward expression of those alleles known as our phenotype. So our genotype are the genes we inherit. So if you're a heterozygous flower, then you have an allele for a white flower and an allele for a purple flower. Now the connection here is that allele is a gene that makes a protein that makes the pigment anthocyanin, where antho means plant, cyanin means blue. So these purple flowers have that pigment in them. It's the same pigment that makes blueberries their color as well. The white allele is actually a mutation. Those flowers don't make anthocyanin. And all your dark colored flowers and fruits like blueberries, blackberries, red cabbage, they carry anthocyanin, which is almost certainly have some pretty good health benefits. So that's Mendelian genetics. That's why he's considered the father of modern genetics because he laid down the first rules of inheritance. He was the first person to figure that out. But if you remember my common theme, it's always more complicated than you think. Almost always more complicated than you think. And I began with that quote from Thomas Hunt Morgan where he had these graduate students that were going around thinking that one gene causes one effect on a character. He's like, no way. And it took a lot of hammering to get that simplistic view of inheritance out. So to me, Thomas Hunt Morgan, he really pushed our knowledge of genetics, really brought it into the modern age here, him and his graduate students. And they went on to win several Nobel Prizes. And a big difference between Thomas Hunt Morgan and Gregor Mendel, whereas Gregor Mendel was a great experimentalist, but he didn't understand how it worked. Thomas Hunt Morgan also did experiments, but he figured out how inheritance worked, or at least put us on the road for our modern genetics in terms of how it worked. And he did this studying a tiny little fly. You've probably seen it in your kitchen on some old fruit. You know it, the fruit fly. It's amazing how much we have learned about our modern genetics by studying these tiny little flies. I mean, back in the teens, I'm talking 1915s, they produced like millions of these fruit flies. And they had these eight chromosomes. They were big. They were easy to study. They were easy to grow, easy to breed. And him and his graduate students, they discovered 
quite a bit. First of all, they discovered that genes are on chromosomes. So they discovered the chromosomal basis of inheritance. So when you see a cell going through mitosis or meiosis, you can see the chromosomes come together, get pulled apart and separate into the daughter cells. So he discovered that it's the chromosomes. That's where the genes are located. Not only did he discover the chromosomal basis of inheritance, him and his like really brilliant graduate students, they also created the first gene maps. Amazing. They could start to figure out like where the genes for some of these things on these fruit flies, like eye color, wing shape, body color, where those genes were located on the chromosomes. So let's keep score here. They discovered the chromosomal basis of inheritance. They created the first gene maps. And by creating the first gene maps, they also realized that traits are linked. Genes are often linked together. And in fact, what they really discovered were sex-linked traits. An example of a sex-linked trait in humans, at least when it goes bad, is colorblindness. That's because the genes for detecting color are on the X chromosome. So guys, we only have one copy, and if it's damaged, we're, we're colorblind. So they discovered sex-linked traits. And more generally, that most genes are inherited together because they're on the same chromosome. And of course, because they're studying meiosis, they realized that crossing over breaks up linked genes. And this lab's not done yet. They made another major discovery, and that was mutations. And mutations are the source of genetic variation. And they discovered it by noticing that one day, one of those normally red-eyed fruit flies had a white eye. And they bred these things by the millions. And they tried to mutate them to get that white eye to show up. Discovering mutations might make a light bulb go off and a new connection. Remember, Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection required that there was variation in a population and that the most fit individuals were more likely to survive more likely to reproduce and pass on those favorable combinations, those better alleles to their offspring, causing the population to change over time. And the two criticisms were blending inheritance. Any variation would be quickly lost in a population. And Gregor Mendel disproved blending inheritance, showing instead particulate inheritance that an allele is an actual thing. It doesn't get blended. The next big criticism was, what's your source of variation? Without any new source of variation, evolution would go to a point and then stop. So here, Thomas Hunt Morgan and his graduate students discovered mutations as a source of genetic variation. Once again, adding more evidence, more support to Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection. And in fact, ironically, in the 1890s, Morgan wasn't that big on evolution by natural selection. But by the 1920s, they were starting to put all this genetic information together along with Darwin's theory, coming up with something called the modern synthesis, which I'll get into in another podcast. But basically, discovering mutations was another major piece of the puzzle for evolution by natural selection. And because of Morgan's work, discovering the chromosomal basis of inheritance, discovering linked genes, 
mapping genes onto chromosomes, discovering mutations are the source of genetic variation. It's all of those reasons that I like to consider him the real father of modern biology because he really started understanding how inheritance work rather than describing a pattern that he kind of got lucky on. And this brings me to my next point. And I've said this before, it's always more complicated. Let's look at extensions to Mendelian genetics. Now, I mean, Mendel had profound importance to our understanding of heredity because he demonstrated particulate inheritance. Genes are a discrete unit. Genes are a thing. They don't get swamped out. But let's take a look beyond Mendelian genetics. That one gene, two alleles, one is dominant, one is recessive. You can have a single gene, but you could have one allele, two alleles, or multiple alleles. And a really good example that I always like to go to are the ABO blood groupings in humans. Are you A blood, B blood, O blood, or AB? A, B, and O are different alleles. And actually, believe it or not, there's like 33 different blood groups, all determined by these different proteins on the surface of our blood cells. We call them antigens because it's what our immune system uses to identify the cells of us, identifying self from cells that are not us, which is, you know, not self here. And of course, those antigens are coded by different genes. An antigen is any molecule that can cause an immune response. And like I said, we have the ABO blood group, which are these glycoproteins. They're a protein with little branch sugars on them. So there's a single gene, but three alleles. And you will only ever have at most two alleles. You know, A, O, A, B, O, O, or B, O. Or you could be homozygous, A, A, B, B, or O, O. So, so in humans, our blood grouping represents an extension to Mendelian genetics. And in fact, you can have a single gene with multiple alleles, many, like, as I said, there's up to 33 different variations of the A's, the B's, and the O's. And actually, O doesn't make the surface antigen because it's a mutated A. That's why it's recessive. Another example here, we can use our blood grouping again. If any of you are AB blood, that is an example of co-dominance. That means if you get the A allele, you express it. If you get the B allele, guess what? You express it, you're AB blood. And don't forget, O, the recessive allele. For you to be O blood, you are homozygous recessive because in a similar way to the white flowers of our pea plants, the white allele is a mutated version of the one that produces the purple uh, pigment anthocyanin. O is a mutated A. So if you get O, you don't produce the antigen as well. And here's another health connection for you that we've often wondered whether or not those blood types confer any type of evolutionary advantage. And it turns out they might. For one, individuals with blood type O might be less susceptible to cholera. And some very early research on the coronaviruses say that people with O blood might be less susceptible to the disease as well. So now we've got two extensions to Mendelian genetics. You can have one gene with multiple alleles. You can have 
codominance where you have multiple alleles that are dominant, not just one dominant, one recessive. You can have multiple that are recessive, multiple that are dominant. But don't forget, because you're diploid, you can only have up to two alleles. That's it. A third example of an extension of Mendelian genetics is incomplete dominance. Sickle cell disease is an example of that. You see, worldwide, malaria is one of the leading causes of death in humans. And it has been for like the entire history of our humanity. And it's caused by this little single-celled parasite called a plasmodium that infects our red blood cells. Well, what does sickle cell disease affect? Your blood cells, specifically your red blood cells. If you are homozygous for the disease, if you become stressed, then those cells can collapse and form a sickle shaped, which will clog your capillaries, which will damage your organs and muscles and cause problems. If you don't have the disease, that's okay. But if you're heterozygous, if you have one allele that's normal, one allele for the sickle cell disease, your blood cells are slightly differently shaped and that confers some resistance to malaria. So in our country, the people that are most susceptible to sickle cell disease are descendants from people that evolved or lived recently in areas where there was malaria, like Africa or Southeast Asia. There's another example of incomplete dominance called hypercholesterolemia. Some people, no matter what they do, are going to have very high cholesterol levels, specifically the LDLs, which is the bad cholesterol because it leads to heart disease and artery disease and just vascular disease in general. Here's how it works. LDLs transport cholesterol from your liver throughout your body. Now, for your cells to receive the cholesterol, they have to have some receptor protein on the surface to bind to the LDLs and bring it in. Basically remove it from your blood. If you lack that receptor, you're homozygous for hypercholesterolemia and you better be on statins because you will die of vascular disease in your 20s. And it doesn't matter if you are a vegan marathon runner, you're gonna die of a heart attack or a stroke. If you are heterozygous, then you produce about half the receptors, which means you produce about half of the receptors, you still have very high cholesterol, and you survive into your 40s before you die of a heart attack or stroke or some type of vascular disease, so you better be on statins. And because of this, it's always good to get your cholesterol checked even when you're young so you can identify whether or not you've got problems with hypercholesterolemia. Let me be clear here too. That is not the only reason why people have high cholesterol. There are other genetic reasons why people have high cholesterol and environmental reasons. You know, like uh, you eat too much bacon and red meat, you can have too much cholesterol. It's complicated. So it's always good, you know, to take a look underneath the hood, see what your blood work looks like so you can identify problems early in life before you develop vascular disease. Now for our fourth one. Our fourth extension. See, there's a lot of extensions. Pleiotropy. Pleiotropy occurs when one gene affects several different traits. Here's a good example. 
It's a gene called OCA2. Now we've got like 20,000 genes and we have all kinds of names for them. But this OCA2 gene is found on chromosome 15. And this is a gene that makes a protein involved with the production of melanin. Now, of course, melanin is produced by cells to protect our DNA from damage by ultraviolet light. It makes us dark. So if you've ever spent time in the sun, your skin becomes darker as it makes more melanin. Specifically, cells in your skin called melanocytes produce this, and we call that a tan. If you get a defect in the OCA2 gene, which basically means it doesn't work, you don't make melanin. It just doesn't work. It doesn't matter how many genes you have to make the most amount of melanin possible. But with that OCA2 gene being mutated, you don't make melanin and you can be an albino. Regardless of which genes you have to make lots of melanin. So that's an example of pleiotropy. Here's another example. I think this is number five. Two or more genes. It's called epistasis. Once again, we can return to hair color, skin color, and eye color. And if you look around, you're gonna notice that there's just a lot of variation in eye color. I mean, even brown eyes, you can have dark brown eyes, you can have light brown eyes, you can have dark blue eyes, light blue eyes, green eyes, hazel eyes. Well, let's keep going here. I mean, to state the obvious, the genetics behind eye color is quite complicated. And there are lots of genes with some under control of other genes and that is epistasis. So epistasis occurs when one gene controls the expression of another gene. Here's a good example. I'm a guy, obviously. We all start as a single-celled zygote. But like other guys and all guys, we start out female. However, I have a Y chromosome. And on that Y chromosome that I got from my dad, there's a little region on it, a gene called the SRY, or the sex-determining region of the Y chromosome. And like other genes, it codes for lots of proteins. But the SRY gene affects the regulation of many genes, and it switches them on, switches other ones off, ramps some up, ramps some down. You know, it's like a volume knob here. And in this case, that one gene affects many traits, and as a result, you take a female embryo and it becomes male. So that's actually a master regulatory gene. It's called epistasis. We can return once again to skin color for another example of an extension of Mendel. Polygenic traits or quantitative traits. Skin color is a perfect example of this. If you think about all the different types of skin color in the world, that's because we have several different types of melanin. Each different type of melanin is produced by different genes. And each of those three or four, or maybe even upward to 15 different genes involved with skin color, like eye color, all have different alleles. So we call that a polygenic trait. And there's another source of variation. I think this is number six, and that is phenotypic plasticity. Now remember, phenotype is our outward appearance. Plasticity means that it's plastic. So one of the complexities of inheritance and how we look is that our genes are not a blueprint at all. They're like a guiding principle. They're like a cookbook. 
And what I mean by that is, yes, our genes do code to make proteins, but they don't operate in a vacuum. They're influenced by the environment. This means that the response of a trait like skin color can change in the environment. Our physiology aspects of it can change as we either exercise, don't exercise, eat poorly, or eat healthy. So if you do daily exercise, cardio, weightlifting, that's going to influence your outward appearance by increasing muscle size and decreasing fat stores. And our skeletal muscles, they come in two different types, slow twitch for endurance, fast twitch for lifting heavy objects, and a phenotypically plastic response is if you go in the gym, lift heavy, you're going to develop more of the type 2 muscle. If you're a runner, especially a long distance runner, you're going to make more of the type 1 muscle and it's going to get in better shape. So that would be an example of phenotypic plasticity. Same with like going out into the sun and getting a tan. And of course, how much you can tan is dependent on how much melanin you produce, which is once again dependent on the genes you have. So our genes don't operate in a vacuum. They respond to our environment as well. And there's even one more source of variation, and I'm not going to get into it too much here, but this is epigenetic inheritance, which occurs where genes can be turned off or on on a regular permanent basis based on our environment. And we'll get into that in another podcast. So those are some of the main extensions to Mendelian genetics. And as you can see, there's quite a few of them. Genetics is complicated. And even though it's complicated, that leads to some common misconceptions about inheritance. So here's a quick list. One, I've already said this, sexual reproduction does not make new alleles. Only mutations can make new alleles. A dominant allele is not stronger, nor is it more common than a recessive allele. And in fact, dominant alleles can actually be rare in a population. And it has nothing to do with being stronger. It just means you are being expressed. A third misconception. Genes don't exist to cause diseases. I know, we often hear about genes for breast cancer, a gene for high cholesterol. But genes don't exist to cause diseases. But it's a mutation in a gene that can lead a particular allele for a gene to malfunction. And when it malfunctions, because it's not producing those receptors, you get hypercholesterolemia. You have too high of LDLs, which leads to vascular disease. And lastly, I mean, there's some more here. But the risk of genetically based diseases is influenced by your genes and the environment. There are two important points here. Versions of a gene that can cause certain diseases may or may not always be inherited, and the environment can interact with genes in the development of diseases. A great example here is if you produce a lot of melanin, then your skin is protected against ultraviolet light. If you are like my mom, she produces very little melanin. So when she goes into the sun, her skin is easily damaged by ultraviolet light, which means she has a much higher risk for skin cancer than somebody who produces a lot of melanin. Okay, so that's it. That is my introduction here 